Romans 9. I'm going to do a disclaimer again in case, in case you missed last week. We are dealing with uh, what some theologians call one of the most difficult passages in the Scriptures. And I, I don't know if that's true. Clearly, it's, it's, uh, it confronts some things in us, I think. So that might be why it's, it's difficult. So let me just tell you some things that kind of help shape how you're going to deal with these things. One is understand this, that other than being difficult, we only have 35 minutes so there are lots of things in your mind that will pop up as they should. And I may or may not address them, but that's, that's okay. Um, because we can't exhaust everything that this passage says in just 35 minutes. The other thing that you need to be aware of, this is not a, a systematic discussion. It's not a doctrines of grace discussion. And, and uh, even though we believe in the doctrines of grace, we're teaching Romans 9. So if you've heard these things about do, uh, predestination and election through a doctrines of grace discussion and you don't hear some things that you would normally hear there, that's why. We're dealing with Romans 9. The other thing is, is because there's some probably natural questions that flow out of this, the elders have put together a Q&A available to anybody who wants to come. So uh, not, uh, it's a week from tomorrow. Uh, the 14th of April at 7 o'clock in the Commons. If you come with questions, and let me just clarify, questions, not debate. I'm certain we could find a few people who'd love to debate yet, but that's not what that's for. That is a, that is a Q&A for those of you who are actually asking questions about the text, about the so what's, and, and that kind of thing. So you, you come, and uh, we'd love to, to meet you there. With that in mind, I've asked Aaron and... Uh, and the elders actually put together a kind of a recommended reading. So if you're one of those people who love to think, love to read, take it down the bunny trails, there's, there's four books that I had Aaron order in this week. One of them we have a lot of. It's Piper's Five Points. So if you want to grab, this is 78 pages, so it's as concise as we can get it. Um, if you go and grab that, real, real inexpensive, that's probably the one I'd highly recommend because it's an easy read. The other one is um, by... Uh, Boyce and Rankin, The Doctrines of Grace, that's also in the bookstore. Now, we have a decreasing number of copies of these next couple. Um, this one is a classic chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. Many of you have read this, but it's there. Great, great read. Um, and then The Five Points of Calvinism by Steele and Thomas. And all of these things have probably, as I showed them to you, progressive, more deeper waters to walk through. So if you're one of those people that like to read, grab one of these. If you just want to add some more information to your collection about what we talked about, this five points by Piper would be the one I'd highly recommend, okay? All in the bookstore today. I want to start today with a question, and this is one of those questions you don't want to answer because you don't want to look silly, so just heads up. Um, what's your favorite part of the gospel? I mean, do you think you have an answer like right on the top of your head there? Um, here's what most people would say. I love mercy and grace and I love God's kindness, eternal life. I love all these things about the, the gospel. I've never, in my 53 years of living, I've never run anybody th that says this. I love what the gospel says about me, that I'm a loser, okay? Because that's what the gospel does. The gospel takes you from where you are and, and gives you a real perspective of the problem to such a degree you're left with nothing. You're, you're, just, you're just lost. You're sinful, incapable, deceitful, guilty, right? You want me to keep going? That's the gospel. It's, it's not a very pretty picture. But here's, here's our reality. We've got a problem that is so deep, so pervasive, so ingrained in our flesh, even conversion doesn't drive it out completely. We've got to wait till glory for this to go away. And that is this. We can claim the good news, and we can love it. I mean, when I talk about Jesus, and you go, something inside goes, I love, I love Christ. I love that I'm forgiven. I trust in him. Even with those declarations, 
there is still a part of us that doesn't like the way in which God saves us. There's a little remnant of sin that we're going to look at today that still wants to assume that somehow we played a role in this. Now, I told you last week my own story, but I told it briefly, and I was kind of contemplating this week um, in hindsight, maybe answering the question, why was this so hard for me? Why, Why did I show up at Bible College in 82 and nine years later, I thought it was true. Why, why was it so long for me? And I, I wrote down a couple things I think are true. One is, and maybe you relate to this, one is I never heard it. Okay, as a pastor's kid, three, three times in church every week, my whole life, my whole life. Now, I love my dad, but I don't remember him saying anything about this. And to be fair, I lived in a generation that for the most part, you could not find a church that taught this, um, including my own, my own dad's church. So maybe it was because I just never heard it. The other thing is, I didn't feel like when I heard this truth that it fit with my experience. I didn't think. Do you know what I'm saying? Like when I sat down and Professor Smith said, you know, God chose you and, and you had nothing to do with it. I, I, my mind went, well, wait a minute, I was there. Man, I was there. I got a Bible somewhere. A counselor wrote in my Bible, Timmy got saved, you know, April whatever, it's 1967. I remember. I was there. Who, who are you to tell me? My experience isn't true. Well, here, here's what we know. We've been talking about this too. Just because your experience says, I made these decisions, it doesn't tell you why. And that's what we've been, we've been saying all this. When the Spirit moves on a sinner, he will say, I love you. He will say, I believe. He will confess grace. Uh, but just because your experience says you participated doesn't mean it's what saved you. God saved you and you acted, right? So I, I wrestle with that. But, but probably in hindsight, the biggest reason why I struggled with this, and, and I think this is the confrontation we've got going on this morning, that the doctrine of predestination and election, that God chooses who he wills, is a pride-devastating truth. More than anything else to say, put you in your place, is that God says, you had absolutely nothing good in you to do anything for me. And I suppose I was offended, to be fair. I was bothered. I was ticked. How dare you tell me I don't have at least some inkling to pick out right from wrong. And uh, we all want to feel like we have some part to play in our own salvation. And remember when we finished last week, I gave you a question, not a question really, but a, but a, a so what to what we talked about. That you're not to leave here anytime asking whether God has chosen you or elected you. You have one objective. Will you believe? Because whoever believes will receive. That's the truth of the gospel. The gospel is a very simple message, isn't it? We're going to find out in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what's it say? You will be saved. It can't get more simple than that. You mean all I got to do is confess him as God? All I have to know that God raised him from the dead, that he has died in my place, and I'll be saved? Yes, but, but I want you to get this in your mind. As wonderful as that truth is, I believe this doctrine of election does more, even more, to tell us about the story of why we need a Savior than John 6, 3.16 could ever tell you. John 3.16 just simply says, you know, for God so loved that whoever will, That's a wonderful truth, and it's true, and that's how God saves people. But this doctrine tells you why you need saving, because you can't save yourself. You can't fix it on your own. It says that there aren't good works enough. There there isn't a a life that you could live that's, that's worthy of it. There's not faith that you can confess necessarily, and there's not certain beliefs. There's not any background. You can't bring your stuff to the equation of salvation. God alone does it. 
And the only, one, only way anyone is ever saved is by God's sovereign decision. That's what we saw last week, right? And I find this comp- like really ironic and, and kind of funny, to be honest with you. Of all the people I've talked to in my life about this particular doctrine, the only people I've met who struggle with it are Christians. Unbelievers will go, whatever. I don't care. I mean, it's like many of the things that God said about him and how he works, they don't care. But Christians... Christians hear that God chose them and suddenly something flares up inside of them and they go, whoa, wait a minute. And what you have just discovered is the remnant of sin. That little flesh part in you that wants to still contribute to the God equation. And uh, that, that whole ongoing life cycle is a journey to discover how bad the problem is. Because no one comes to Christ fully aware of how broken we are. It's true, right? No matter what trash heap God found you on, it still isn't everything. I've told you this before, and I don't know if you think I'm joking, and I'm not. When I got saved, I thought God and I had a couple of things to work out, just a few. Get this one out of the way and that out of the way, and we're golden. I didn't know anything. I didn't know what I was capable of. I didn't know what my, my mind would wander to. I didn't know what I'd fall in love with. I didn't know what I would embrace. I didn't know how dark and sick I am. I just didn't know. And I, somehow in a twisted way, and you've got to hear me on this, the more I walk with Christ, the more devastated I am about myself, and yet the gospel gets bigger and more beautiful every day. It's the only hope I have. It's the only thing that I care about is the grace of God for me, a sinner, because I screw up everything. And I'm not just saying those words. I don't have the freedom to tell you how I screw up, but... It's not good. And, I, and I'm just saying that, that the reality of it is this journey that we are on, when God saves you, you know this much. In the loving hand of God over time, over your years, you're going to die knowing you need help, not just an adjustment. You need help, not just a tweak. You need life and life eternal. So I find this interesting in this doctrine that we're studying. Year after year, we learn how pervasive this sin problem is. So much so that when you hear this doctrine of election and predestination, something rises up inside of us. And now we have a problem with the way in which God says he saves us. Tell me that isn't twisted. It is. If you recognize your need, why would you ever, ever, ever suggest that his solution isn't just enough? Why would you ever say that you want another way? Why would you argue with how he did it? And yet, we do. And Paul assumes that you will because there's questions that he asks after he has mentioned to us God's sovereign control. So, James Boyce, I was reading this week, had a statement um, that says this, that there are two ways that mankind deals with God. I don't know if it's this simple, but I think it's interesting. One is that he dismisses God altogether, denies him, and the other is that he blames him. And I don't know if it's as simple as saying that the unbelieving world, the people that don't know Jesus, deny, they, they just simply reject the Bible. They reject the gospel. They reject the idea of sin or the, the ability that God can now impute righteousness. They just think it's all a joke. You've got a crutch. You're, you're just a, a weak person, right? They dismiss all that stuff. But at least I know this in this passage that the Christian now is looking at what God has done for us in salvation. He's beginning to rise up in his blaming God for his position. So, so that's what we want to look at. In verse 19, I want to just mention the question and go back and build some context. Here's what he says. And you will say to me then, why does God find fault? If God's the one who chooses, then who can resist God, right? Now that's a very specific 
context that we will unpack a little bit more of today, referring to God's sovereignty in salvation, that God elects who he wills. But the bigger context, and this is why it's really important to understand where Paul is putting this in the, in the Romans uh, discussion, and that is that he said some amazing things and finished at Romans 8 with this truth for us. Nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. Nothing. Not your worst day. Not anything outside of you. Not anything inside of you. Not, not anything. Not even your faulty religious mindset. Not even your thinking that you contribute to your salvation. Nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now that wonderful truth is a promise. But if it could be said about the promise maker that he doesn't keep his promises, then we've got a problem with Romans 8, because what if he decides not to keep that one? And so what he's done now in Romans 9 is to bring Israel in to prove that the accusation that somehow God hasn't delivered on his people um, so that he can say, you can trust it. You can trust that nothing can separate you. And so that's what he does. In Romans 9, he, he brings this idea of Israel in and simply says that you're thinking about it all wrong. God's promise wasn't to a bloodline, but was to a spiritual people, and he's kept it, i.e., see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All you got to do is look at the patriarchs, see how God made those selections. It was his choice that he did, and all of the people, all of his spiritual people have received all the promises that God in, intended. And then he makes this wonderful claim, I think in verse 16, the idea, or verse 15, that God has a determined mercy. In, in other words, God points his affections on whomever he wants. Whoever he wants gets compassion and mercy. It's his decision. It's determined by, by, by God. I, I want us to, to read it in context so that the rest of what we're going to do today will make sense. But pick it up in verse 6 of Romans 9. I'll read to verse 13. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born or done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And the remnant of sin in the heart of every person rises up and says what? That's not fair. Verse 14, not fair. Is there injustice on God's part? And we said this last week, that charge can't stick because it would mean that somewhere out there, there are people who don't need mercy. Like some, some island somewhere, someplace I've never seen or heard of, there's this group of people who are instinctively righteous and holy, who've never sinned or crossed a line with God, who always think righteous thoughts and godly thoughts, living for his glory continually every minute of their life. That person doesn't exist, okay? I shouldn't have to tell you that. Or the reality that somehow there is a group of people out there who understand their problem, who really want God's solution so much, but they can't have it. That, too, is a false argument because God grants life to all who will receive it. If you're sitting here today and you're saying, I know I got a problem. I know I'm a sinner. I know I, I believe that there's a God. I believe that he has revealed himself in Jesus, and I need salvation. Well, it's yours. Baby, you can take it. 
It's all yours by faith alone in Christ alone. You receive grace. There isn't a person out there saying, I want it really bad. And God goes, mm, not for you. Not today. See, both of those are lies. Because here's what we know. Because God is just to judge all men because all men are sinners. Romans 3, right? And let me just clarify what I mean by that. I'm not talking about what you do. I'm talking about who you are. Who you are is what you do. If, if somehow you could constrain the outside to such a degree that you can't sin. I changed you to the wall and said there's no, I gouge out your eyes, you can't sin with your eyes. Guess what? You're a sinner. The Bible uses words like dead and blind and unresponsive. That's who we are. And because of those things, we choose to sin. Do you understand? The problem is huge. It's more than just moral constraint. It's, it's a character issue. It's a heart issue. It's a dead issue in us, right? Nobody, get this, nobody's looking for God unless God is already looking for him. And the mercy that Paul has talked about in, in Romans 9 here, that mercy... Paul says, always ends in belief and salvation. It's guaranteed because when God comes after you, he's the hound of heaven. You can't resist it. That's the truth. Some of you could say amen to that because that's your story. You were running so hard the other way and he just stopped you. And that's good news. That's what he does. And he does it to whomever he wants to. Okay? But the remnant of sin in man just kind of rises up one more time. It won't die really easily, so it says this in verse 19. Well, then why does he find fault? I mean, after all, if God's just going to show mercy on whomever he wants and it doesn't depend on my will, then how can he still blame me? If he chooses not to save me, that's on him, not on me. Well, I want to discuss Paul's answer here and, and put some qualifiers around it. Of most of the guys I read this last couple of weeks, most writers would say that Paul's answer is not very satisfying. In fact, one guy said it this way, the question is entirely warranted and the reply does nothing to answer it. I would beg to differ, respectfully differ with those guys because I think Paul's, Paul's answer is a strategic strike. And here's what I mean by that. The issue about what God has done sovereignly in salvation isn't a confusion. You don't need more information. There's a rebellion going on. Do you understand what I'm saying? Paul knows that the reason why people resist what God does, this good and gracious God who cares about sin and sinners, who cares about his righteousness and his glory, this God should, could do everything that he wants to do. So Paul knows if you're going to ask questions, your problem isn't that you need more information. You've got a rebel's heart. So how does Paul deal with a rebel's heart? Look at verses 20 and 21. You're going to love this answer. But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? <laughs> it's basically Paul's version, paraphrases, sit down and shut up, okay? Um, Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Th these short sentences are simply describing Paul putting us in our place. The first phrase that makes that clear is that first one. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Just put that O oh man next to God, and what do you have to say? Compare yourself to God. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's just, 
and he stores up wrath for sin. He can't ignore sin. He has to punish sin. Our God is wise and true and good and holy. Amen? That's who he is. And we are in no position whatsoever to judge the actions of this God. That's the first thing Paul says. You, old man, talking to God, maybe you ought to think that one through. Second thing he says, verse 20. Well, what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made it this way? So he's the creator, and we are the creation. And Paul simply says, listen, he forms you. He makes you for his own good pleasure. And does the molded have the right to say to the molder, this isn't good? Of course not. It's a foolish argument. This last week, we have a lot of projects at my house, by the way. If I, if I could do anything with my life, I would live in my garage and just putz. You know what I'm saying? It's very therapeutic for me. Work with my hands a lot. So it was about, I think it was probably Monday or Tuesday, I heard a bunch of commotion in the garage. I'd already gone to sleep. And, and I went out there, and, and my son was, there was a bike explosion, okay? There was bicycles all over the garage. And he had gone out and bought two bikes, going to make one bike. And by the time I got there, he was really, really frustrated. Waste of money, going to throw it all away. And I said, slow down. So we started putting bearings in and cranks, and built, we built a bicycle. And there was a couple of parts missing on this used bike. So I went under the bench, and I pulled out a piece of sheet metal. Just a flat piece of sheet metal. I took out a tin snips, and I carved out a piece, and I started to file it and shape it, and I made a piece. Now, how odd would it have been for that piece of sheet metal to go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I'm a car fender. Do not turn me into a bike part. You laugh because it's obvious that's how Paul uses it here. Think this one through. If God is shaping you, do you have the right to judge how he shapes? No. The third way in which Paul puts us in our place is that illustration of the potter and the clay. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other for dishonorable use? Now, it does sound very similar to the molder molded uh, discussion, and it is, but I think right here Paul is now introducing the authority of Scripture to the argument, okay? Because this, this concept wasn't Paul's idea. I'm going to read to you a passage in Jeremiah chapter 18 where, where the prophet is hearing from God this illustration of how God chooses to do what he wants as a potter chooses to do what he wants with clay. Now listen to this. The word of, came to Jeremiah from the Lord, said this, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended it. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. 
my assumption there is a little bit, and that's the only, not the only place. Isaiah has many other mentions of the clay and, and, and the potter. But my assumption is that Paul is, is kind of reflecting on that. My, my other assumption is that the people reading this probably knew it. 700 years earlier, Jeremiah wrote that. And it points out exactly everything Paul has been saying here. You can't blame God. That God is sovereign, saving and condemning who he wills, and it's not arbitrary. It's based on sin and rebellion, so turn from your sin. That's what that passage in Jeremiah says, that God does those things. Now, I don't know how you respond to Paul's answer. You might be one of those who go, yeah, that, that didn't satisfy. Um, then I want to give you some perspective. I was reading this week, and I ran into a paper article by Jonathan Edwards, this would make a great bumper sticker. The title of the paper was The Justice of God and the Damnation of Sinners. So feel free to use that if you want. Um, but the point that he's making in that paper is the exact point that Paul is making here. That if God should reject us and destroy us, it would be completely appropriate based on how we've treated him and other people. Any arguments? I'm going to give you the four points because when I read them, I cried. Because we're guilty. I'm guilty. Here's the first thing he said. If God should cast you off, it would be exactly agreeable to your treatment of him. He says that we don't show any particular love or affection for God. In fact, you know, just the opposite. When we love someone or something, it gets all of our attention, all of our time, all of our money, all of our resources. We say we love God, but it's not true. We don't think about God unless we're in trouble or we need something or we want to blame him for what things, how things are going. We don't love what he loves. We don't hate what he hates. We go to church sometimes out of obligation. We are unengaged in worship. When we pray, our hearts are far from him. In fact, we can't even come to a prayer meeting. It's too costly. Um, we blow God off on our decisions. We use things that God gives us for our means, not for his kingdom and his glory. That's just in us, right? We're the ones, the privileged ones, who said that we've heard the call of God, that we know enough from the scriptures to know that God, hound of heaven, left heaven to come after his people. We've received the truth. The rest of the world hasn't, right? The friends of ours and people around who've rejected Christ, they don't have the word, and yet we act like, no big deal. So his point is this. Why should God be obligated to show any favor to us if that's how we treat him? Why should he pay any attention? Why should he listen to us pray? Second thing Edward says is if you should forever be cast off by God, it would be agreeable to your treatment of Jesus. God has given us a Savior, amen? God himself put him to death for sinners. That's us. But we don't really care. Not like we should. Not at the level that we should. We care for ourselves, we care for our pleasures, for our interests, we ignore his rightful place in our life. In fact, we deny him as Lord over our behaviors, that's why your behaviors are out of control and whacked. He can't have them. And if Jesus were to show up today and start confronting us and our wayward hearts and our lack of affections for him, we'd be the ones standing in line asking for his execution. So, based on our treatment of Jesus, why should God care? Why should he care if we're going to just blow him off? Why wouldn't he just destroy us if we're going to just ignore it, give it lip service? 
Edward's third point was if God should forever cast you off and destroy you, it would be agreeable to your treatment of others. The golden rule is what? Treat others as you want to be treated, right? And we all want to be treated well. What if God simply treated you how you treated other people? It wouldn't go so well, would it? Here's the truth. We all know that sin hurts and it destroys, but we never sin alone. It's not like you decide one day, I'm choosing to rebel against God, and you find some island somewhere, and you isolate yourself behind a fence undercover so no one can be influenced by your sin. No, we sin with everybody else. Now, dads, do I have to tell you how that goes? Every time a father goes out to make a knuckleheaded decision, who do we wound? Our children, our wives, women. Every blunder you make scars your kids. I hate to tell you that, but it does. And they have, to start, they have to sort through the weeds. If you're a high school or junior high student, a single or a college age student, every time you live out your Facebook life, that artificial sin out loud, be identified by gore, every time you do, you don't sin alone. You drag your entire peer world into your garbage. Why would God care? What if God just said, okay, time out. I'm just going to treat you like you treat all these other people you say are your friends. He'd be just because we don't care about people. Edwards mentioned one other thing. What if God should eternally cast you off? It would be agreeable to your behavior towards yourself. In other words, we understand this, that nobody can save themselves. But we don't even try to help. We pursue sin that we know will damage us. Sin we should run from, we we go to. We turn from God and turn away from his truth. So why is God obligated to take better care of us than we will ourselves? Why would he care? Why should he care one little bit about our welfare when we won't even seek our own? The point of this, church, is real simple. God is just to punish sinners in eternity separated from him. That's what we all deserve. And I can't even describe it. It's darker and deeper than that. But God is just, right? But here's the unbelievable truth that Paul's been trying to communicate. But he's merciful. He's compassionate. And God took on flesh and came to this world to provide a salvation, a way out for who would ever believe in him. And you won't get what you deserve. In spite of what you do, in spite of what you struggle in the places that you've been, God will lift you back up and make you righteous because he covers you in the work of Christ. Amen? That's what he's done. Boyce says this. Listen to this. If all God wanted to do was send people to hell, he would not have needed to tell us these things or anything else. There would have been no need for a Bible, no need for preachers to preach or messengers to explain and teach it. No need for a savior to be held forth as the heart of the Bible's message. If all God wanted to do was let us go to hell, all he, all he would have needed was to do nothing. We are capable of rushing off to hell like lemmings running down a hillside entirely by ourselves. But God has not done that. He's provided a savior. He has given us a Bible. He has sent us messengers and their message like that of all the true prophets sent by God. And his message is this, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, turn from your sin. Now, today, God is setting the way of salvation before you. That's what God did. 
if anything in all the world would declare how merciful and compassionate God is, it's the fact that right now you have ears to hear that Jesus saves. What else do you need? Who is to bring an argument against God? Who could accuse him of being unfair? Let's move on. We're running out of time. In verses 22 and 23, I think Paul gives us the why behind his sovereignty and election. Look at verse 23. There's a phrase here. In order to make known the riches of his glory. The reason why God has sovereignly done what he's done in election is that he's done it for his own glory. God's glory is at stake. Hopefully in just a couple minutes we'll add um, some weight to that. But pick up verse 22 so we can see what Paul's saying here. He says in the beginning of verse 22, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power? It almost, the first time you read that, it's almost like um, a really unsure, apathetic, like, I don't know, like Paul's not really sure about what he's saying. Well, what if God, I don't know, maybe this is an answer. That's not what he's saying here because the word um, desiring there in verse 22 has the idea of determined intent. In other words, this is what God did. No questions asked. It's not like, what, what if God chose to reveal his glory these ways? No, this is how God revealed his, his glory. It's clear. And Paul goes on now, in my opinion, to share four particular things that God does for his glory. The first one is seen in verse 22, that God's glory is on display when dealing with sinners who reject him. Look what it says. But what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Paul calls them vessels of wrath. God's holiness and righteous standard, God's right wrath, like stored up anger against sin, is on display whenever he deals with the sin he encounters. So I'm going to pop your cork a little bit here. Just know this, that hell, in all of its gory, frightful state, is going to be screaming for all eternity the glory of God. Just the fact that God is precise about sin means and says forever, he's a holy God. He doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't forget about things. His standard is perfection. See, Peter, you must be perfect as I am perfect. God in hell is demonstrating for all eternity that he is a God of righteousness and truth, who keeps his word, who can't compromise on sin, and he's holy. And God gets glory from that. Right? And I have to say this, just to cut it off at the past if some of you are thinking the wrong way. God's wrath isn't just random insanity. It's for sin, of which we're all guilty, right? Sometimes people just kind of write in this, this determined craziness of God that he just kind of, oh, okay, I'm going to just be angry, randomly angry. No, he's pouring out righteous wrath for sin. Just make sure you remember that. It's a deserved wrath Look at the second way. In verse 23, Paul tells us that God's glory is on display. It's by dealing with sinners whom he extends mercy to. In order that to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for, for glory. Undeserved favor. If you're a Christian, you understand, you get from God what you don't deserve. You get forgiveness and righteousness not of your own, Right? Now, this is the part in the sermon, my guess, is if you're going to struggle with something, you'll struggle with this compare and contrast. Vessels of wrath, vessels of mercy, 
the way Paul says it, um, one for destruction, one for glory, seems so arbitrary. Seems so um, cold and determined. But there's a word in this, these two verses I want you to see that clarify it for us. It's not as if God is picking two neutral pieces to express one wrath and one one glory. Look, look what he says here. There's a, ver- the, there's a word here in verse 22 and in 23. It's a verb. Do you see it? Prepared for destruction, prepared for glory. Do you see that word prepared? That's a verb with two different tenses, okay? One is a passive verb and the other is an active verb. And I know this might be over your head, but th- let me just make sure you understand why it's important to understand this. When Paul is writing vessels prepared for destruction, he is not talking about an action God takes for them. He's talking about an action they take for themselves. In other words, sinners prepare themselves for their own destruction by their rebellion against God. Does that make sense? God's just sitting there letting it go on. They want rebellion. They want to resist. He doesn't stop it. They prepare themselves for their own rejection. The other verb in uh, verse 23 is that active form. And in this case, God is the subject doing the work. He is the one coming. He is the one shaping and forming and granting mercy. Do you see that there? And here's what we have. Uh, again, another proof of what Paul has been saying. That the sovereign plan of God, he chooses who he extends grace to, freely apart from, or better said, in spite of our sin. And in the sovereign plan of God, the rest are passed over, left in their sinful condition and rebelliousness. Does that make sense? God doesn't actively create unbelief in anybody. So, here's what we can say after a passage like this. God is just, amen? How about a little bit more conviction? God is just, amen. Amen. God is merciful, amen. He really is, he really is. Two more things uh, briefly to mention that Paul does, that God demonstrates for his glory. Verses 24 through 26 is this, that God's glory goes on display by grafting in a bunch of outsiders like us. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in that very place where I said to them, you are not my people, there will be called sons of the living God. Here's here's the thing that blows me away. We We are so clueless. Israel had the oracles, they had the law, they had the demonstration, they had the history, they had the lineage, they, they were close. We don't have a clue. We are hopeless and helpless. We don't know. We don't know there is a God unless God shows up and reveals himself, and God has done that to us. We're sitting here, most of us, as a bunch of Gentiles simply because God decided to graft us in to his promise. Do you understand that? And God's on display. Somehow in the mystery of what God is doing, he says, this is, this is how I will tell my story. I will punish sinners with wrath. I will redeem another group of sinners who don't deserve it. I'll graft in a whole bunch of people who are clueless about who I am and what I've said. And then he says this in verse 27 through 29, that he will also go on display by hanging on to a remnant of Israel and keeping his promise to them. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, to the number of the sons of Israel be as sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay, as Isaiah predicted. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Here's what God said. Listen, Israel, you don't deserve anything. I've given you everything. I gave you the truth. I demonstrated. I showed up and showed off in front of you, and all you did was run the other way. You should be wiped off and annihilated. 
but I'm going to keep my promise. I'm going to hold on to a remnant. I'm going to grant mercy to some. Do you see this? That God's glory is on display in all those things that he does? Let me give you some things to think about as you leave this morning. If I said to you, um, what is the chief end of man? Would you know the answer to that? Westminster Confession? Yeah, it, real simple. In other words, some reformers put this together. Here's what your life is to be about. Your chief goal, your chief end, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Okay. What do you think God's chief end is? Glorify himself. Are you okay with that? Seriously, ask your heart. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with this amazing, magnificent, glorious, holy, righteous, gracious, merciful God would go on display with everything that he makes to reveal how wonderful he is? Are you okay with that? That he can do whatever he wants? Because you know what he wants is always good and right and true? Well, that's a question you really got to answer because if you wrestle with what Paul has said um, and say, I don't, I don't like it, then you're not into God's glory because that's what he's into. One word I skipped in here, and I'm just going to make a point of it. It's the idea of how uh, God has endured with patience, that word patience, uh, those vessels um, of wrath. I want you to know that God is patient for a reason. God is patient for a reason. You and I are not in hell today simply for this reason, that God's patience was leaving room for his kindness to move us to repentance. If you're a Christian, you know that's true. You just go, I, I, he should have just smudged me out a long time ago, and he didn't, and he caught me right here, right here, right on the edge of something stupid, or right after I did something stupid, and he pulled me back, and that's what God has done. And whatever space between your life and your stupidity, God allowed that to lead you to your senses. Patience. One other aspect of patience I, I've got to tell you about, his patience isn't forever. It's good, but it's not eternal. If you're sitting here and you would say of yourself, I don't know Jesus and I don't want Jesus, I want you to know something. You're experiencing the good benevolence of God. He hasn't dealt with your sin yet. His, his patience is good, but it's not eternal. Because right behind his patience, we learned in Romans 1, is his wrath. And one day... He'll decide the time's up, and he will be right, and he will be good, and he will be true to open up all of his wrath on that sin because you choose, you chose to go it alone without a covering. And here's what the scripture says. If you simply recognize your need and embrace Jesus who is God's solution to your sin, you will be saved. But if you reject him somewhere, Patience is going to run out, and then you're going to have to deal with the holy God. And I know this doesn't sound like a lot of fun. I didn't tell stories, and we're not joking around, but this is not joking around stuff. This is, this is a life sentence we're talking about, right? But I think, and maybe you share this, every time I get a look at how bad I am, I love him more. I just love him more. Let's pray together. God, your salvation is amazing. 
your sovereign gift of grace blows my mind. God, for those in this room who would declare Jesus alone for the salvation, I pray, I pray we would love him more. I pray we would worship him sincerely from our heart. If there's anybody sitting in this room still holding out, um, God, I pray that you crush the self-will, lead them to grace, I pray in Christ's name.